0: Well, good morning. We're um, heading into the second week now of a, a series in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the the story of the birth, really, of the, of the primitive Christian church. And uh, I love to bring imagination to the Scriptures when I read them and speculate and kind of draw stories and what-ifs out of it. And so I want to do a what-if this morning and ask you to kind of join me in this little speculative exercise. If God's Spirit were to descend on you and fill you with the full power of the Spirit that created the universe and compel you to go out in Christ's name, what would would the Spirit do in you? what would happen? You know, some of my first things are to look at my deficiencies, and I was going to run through a few of these with you this morning, and then Mark told me I only had about 30 minutes, so I'm going to have to cut the list way down. Um, But, you know, I tend to jump to conclusions and get passionate. Well, God would come into my life and give me great restraint and temperance and, and temper my thoughts and my speech. Or, let's say. I tend to be insensitive sometimes to the needs of people around me. Oh, God would make me so intuitive and sensitive, and I'd, I'd really see what people wanted and needed. I'd spot the things needed being done and just jump in and do them. Basically, I always think that if the Holy Spirit came upon me in a powerful way, he'd change my basic character. Have any of you had that same feeling? Or he'd compel you to get your act together and become morally good. Maybe he'd make you want to sacrificially serve other people. Maybe some bad habits you have would get changed. Maybe you'd be nicer. Maybe we think that if God came on our lives with the full power of the Spirit, we would become monks in a monastery, silent except for our five offices of prayer a day where we chanted. And the rest of the time we'd eat soup and walk around in silence in the monastery. Who knows what it is we speculate that God might do with us if he filled us with the Spirit. And, and I wonder that, and then I read this mysterious book of Acts written by Luke over and over again, and I see a quite different story than what I would expect the Spirit to do if the Spirit came upon me. And so why don't we read the story of the birth of the church in the very first part of Acts 2, and see what actually happens there, and talk about it from several angles this morning before we come to the Lord's table. Here we go from the top in chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and this is the day of the the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of First Fruits among the Jewish people. So at Jerusalem at this time where Jesus' disciples are gathered, there's a big festival and Jewish pilgrims from all over the world have come to gather and bring the first fruits to the Lord as an offering from their fields, little lambs, birds, chickens, the whole, the whole thing. The first fruit of all the crops and all the animals were brought in and offered to the Lord out of gratitude. And these were burnt as offerings and these were also part of what upheld the, the lifestyle of the, of the priests of Israel. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place, these disciples, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem at that time Jews, devout people from every nation under heaven. And this, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because every one of them was hearing speech in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And by the way, the inference here is Galileans are stupid country bumpkin fishing people who can barely speak their own language, let alone spew out the language of the world eloquently. And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Lord, what does this mean for us this morning? We're gathered here in your presence. We're hearing your word. We're wondering what would happen if we were filled with the full, compelling power of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to catch some glimpses from this first community as to what it is you might want to do with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the wind and fire come. Was everybody morally perfect instantly? Yeah, the world wouldn't bear that to be true over the last 2,000 years. Was everybody excellent in everything they do? I'm, I'm afraid not. Was everybody suddenly a grand theologian, the Karl Barth, uh, he's my favorite, of their generation? No. They just told in their own way the incredible story of a Jesus who lived, died, and rose again and was now alive in them by the Holy Spirit. What, what does the Holy Spirit empower people to do? To just live out loud the fact that Jesus is alive. To incorporate that into their everyday lives and in, in this miraculous instance, by the way, that was given for people to tell in all the languages of the world. So the impetus of the gospel from day one was Jesus is alive and that's such good news the world needs to hear, the world deserves to hear. Tell the story. So what these people basically do when they're full of the power of the Holy Spirit is just tell their story. And amazingly, God takes care of the rest by allowing their story to come out in ways that people from all over the world can understand and respond to. And the explosive worldwide Christian movement that now contains over 2 billion people started in Jerusalem with the wind and fire of that Holy Spirit. Lives caught fire and told the story. And the wind spread the fire of the story to the known world and has kept repeating that for over now 2,000 years. The wind and fire ignited the early believers and spread the good news. The question is, has something changed or not? And I'm afraid nothing's changed except for perhaps our universal unfaithfulness to that first day and what it asked of us. You know, many of us, would die for other people in our community. Many of us would serve 30 hours a week. Many of us would work hard to clean up our act. Many of us work hard to learn how to get along together in community. Many of us work hard to stay in fellowship with each other as Christians, to read our Bibles and pray, and all those things are really good. Please don't stop them. They're all really, really good. But let me add this. They weren't quiet about. They didn't go quietly into that cold, dark, dark night. They stumbled out into the light of day and told the Jesus story. And you know what? The church has been horribly shy the last 2,000 years. We've actually tried to put that fire out through social activism, through theological speculations, through being really busy fighting with other denominations about What's some stupid thing like baptism? No, baptism is really important. But it's not worth fighting and dying over what baptism is. I'm, I don't think. If you feel that way and it is, then uh, you'll have to kill me after church. Um, but I think instead, God has called us to be fire starters with our own story. The story of Jesus who's alive in us. That when we, these people didn't just say Jesus alive, they were saying Jesus is alive in me. And God was giving them the grace to communicate that against incredible cultural barriers. Let me talk to you about being fire starters. I learned a little bit about being a fire starter the hard way. When I was in fifth grade, since I start crying when I think about it, I went to a Boy Scout camp on Hood Canal, not far from where our beach cabin is now. It's called Camp Ojovis. And they had two lakes and canoes and all these aquatics, and you could get merit badges like crazy. And as a young boy scout, I was going for my Star Scout and I was gonna get all the merit badges. And one merit badge that you could only get at camp. I got the canoeing and swimming and everything the summer before was marksmanship. And I really my dad had, had a 22 rifle and I'd shot, and I was so excited to go up to the rifle range and so show how well I could shoot and get my marksmanship merit badge. I still remember this. We had an old World War II gunnery sergeant simply named Sarge. He was an African-American man that was about seven times my size from the deep south with one of those big accents and a commanding presence, we just called him Sarge. And we were on the rifle range and he was starting to instruct us and being the fifth grader precocious that I was, I actually bent down and picked up one of the rifles while he was explaining stuff before he told us to pick up our rifles. And I reached down and touched this rifle. And Sarge screamed, you over there. And I think he called me fatso because I was kind of a big kid. And I had this rifle in my hand. I said, what? And I turned around. So now I'm pointing a rifle at Sarge, which apparently you're not supposed to do. I don't know what the problem is. Okay pointing a rifle at an unarmed why, why is that a problem with anybody I was only like 10 so I got kicked off the range not for that day I got kicked off the range permanently and run out and this guy literally walked me out the door shoved me off the rifle range and sent me crying down the road by, my, by myself back to our campsite and I was crushed I was wrenching in tears sitting there and our scoutmaster, Jack Gallagher came up and found me and sat on a log next to me and put his arm around my shoulder. And he goes, well, man, um, that's rough. I think I'd have given you a second chance, but I'm not in charge. Let's see, what can we do? He looked at my merit badges. And he goes, well, you don't have the merit badge yet for campfires and tending campfires. We're going to get that merit badge this week. I'm going to make you the, the fire master for Troop 94's camp for the rest of the week. So he fired my friend Todd Silver, who Nancy knows, from being the fire guy and made me the fire guy and taught me how to build fires. And I learned a lot that summer that I remembered. One thing was don't point a loaded gun at anybody, especially the sergeant if you want to work on the rifle range. But um, in addition to that lesson, um, I learned how to start fires. And what I learned is when you start a fire, you've got to start it small and in a close area, and it needs oxygen to aerate it and it needs dry wood to fuel it, and it needs heat. Okay, so those are the basics, and it needs some shelter, you know, so you got logs or rocks around the fire, and then use the combination of the air and the heat to build the fire, and you kind of tend to build a fire upward, not outward. So it, it burns and then falls outward and spreads. And so I got to be pretty good at fire, and we had to cook all our meals, three meals a day, over a fire, no propane stoves or anything, so this was a good that I got to do to keep the fire hot and going and so a couple of things that I found out about fires is you need you need the wind to make it work a little bit okay that's that's the oxygen that I see of the spirit you also need the fire just like you uh, uh, the heat source just like you see here but the thing is if you're going to make a fire work you have to pack the logs together and you have to keep moving them together and together and if you don't move the logs together the fire won't stay burning in fact, this is an experiment that somebody told me about, and its you could defy it, but it works most of the time. you got any fire going, there's three or four logs on it, just take the logs off and move them to the side of the fire pit. You know, in about 20, 30 minutes, you can probably pick up that burning log and move it without burning your hands. It'll burn out that fast. Stacked with the other logs on the fire, you'd burn your hand off up to the elbow just touching it. And so the fact is that the logs on the fire only stay burning when they stay in close proximity to each other. And that's one of the things that I've really taken away from this this story of the coming of the Spirit. One, when the Spirit comes on us, God wants us in the warmth of his Spirit and in in the wind and fire of the Spirit to go where we're sent and to tell the Jesus story and, and not be afraid of letting it out wherever we're at. And I find more and more... And and as I get older, and I guess I feel like there's less risk, it gets easier and easier to do. And it's it's just not that hard, and it's not unwelcome. And for me, that means that the Seahawks around the Huskies or with Christian people in the community that I work with in Senator in this church, and I've learned that people are people, and everybody is hungry to hear about the love of God and the passion God has and the kind of world that God dreams of where love wins and everything else loses. Our world's dying to hear that unifying, loving message in the midst of all the division and hatred and violence that we're surrounded with at this point in time. So there's an, there's an invitation, a longing from the world to hear the story and meet the kind of people that want to love and include other human beings in the God story. And I, and I take this away as really important, but the other thing I take away important from the story is that the logs only stay burning when they're together Since 2000, attendance in church has declined. By the way, you're here. One thing preachers do, have you ever noticed this? Preachers get mad about something like people coming late to church, so they yell at the church for people being late, but the late people aren't there yet. So you just got creamed for showing up in time to church, right? And the pastor harangues about people who don't come to church on Sunday. Oh, excuse me, pastor, you just slammed the 100 people or whoever's there, and all the people that you really wanted to hear what you just said aren't there. So if you're here, this is not directed at you, this is to reinforce you. But we do best when we burn in that fire together. We don't have to be clumped together seven days a week. In fact, the holy huddles of Christianity in a Christian ghetto are not what our world needs, where people are in fellowship groups seven days a week and never run into anybody that's not Christian. I'm telling the Jesus story to these people who've been Jesus people for 40 years. I wonder why the church isn't growing. You know, <laughs> that, that doesn't work either. But the fact is we need each other in community. We need the warmth of nurturing our faith side by side with each other close by. That's, that's the beauty of worship like this on Sunday morning, an hour together to lift our hearts and the hands to the Lord and let him do stuff in the spirit inside of us that we're not even sure what it is he's doing or if anything. Sometimes we go to church and we think it's blah on an ordinary Sunday and we walk away. My friend Don was telling me about this friend of ours who had a book, Mike Acanelli, called 110 Things to Do During a Bad Sermon. Some of them were like roll marbles until somebody notices or something like that. You know. So there's a, you know, read a novel. Um, by the way, y'all you know, put your Kindles away. I'll be done in a few minutes here. Um, but... The fact is that there's something beautiful that happens here, and sometimes we don't even know what it is that's taking place. We don't know how our faith's being reinforced. We don't know how we reinforced and bolstered the faith and courage of another person with us. It may have just been a hug. It may have been saying, let me make that cup of coffee for you. It may have been, how are you doing, and don't just say fine to me. I don't know what it is that happens. Maybe it's a song we sing or or a prayer that's prayed might be the Lord's Prayer that would blow your mind that day and you'll walk away just thinking part of it, repeating it over and over again. And you wouldn't have had that if you weren't here. So thank you for being the logs that keep my fire alive and warm. Thank you. And we ought to look at each other and the people around you and look and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because that privatized faith that feels like we can do it alone is really good when our log's hot. And we get out here by ourselves and we go, hey, this is kind of nice. I don't have to put up with all these other crackly logs. There's no hot log on top of me, around me, bothering me. This is a pretty good deal, you know, and I'm out here and, huh. I've gone from being a source of ignition to a dead old piece of charcoal sitting around. And so I want to talk and stress about the fact that we need to live our lives released on the world as the church scattered. But we also need to begin with a rhythm of the church gathered, and so, as so many people say, even though sometimes worship and the and the and the rhythm of it can be a doldrum, sometimes it's hard. I love the story of the guy who gets up and says, "I just don't want to go to church this morning." He's an older guy still living with his mom, which that should tell you something to begin with, right? And the mom was, "Oh, you got to go to church this morning, guys." I, I don't want to go to church today. You've got to go to church this morning. And he goes, why, Mom? And she goes, because you're the pastor. So, <laughs> you know, you know? So, um, you know? So, so the fact is, it's, it's, it's not whoopee, ha, ha, the whistles are blowing, the horns are playing for all of us every week. But the beauty of the discipline of worship, of fellowship, is that it keeps us warm and makes us a warm, vital offering to the world we're in. It also offers us a community of rever- rest. Uh, reference to bring fence to by the way, if you come here to church and you worship here and for any reason i 'm going to challenge everybody here and mark this isn 't in my sermon, so you kill me during this week. Mark likes to scream what i 'm going to say before I do it um, no i 'm just kidding he doesn't so so <laughs> so anyway, do this if there 's any reason whatsoever that you feel. Look, at the, this is a theater. It's a public space where people come, thousands of people come to a year. Nothing threatening about this environment. No spooky candles or chimes or anything. I love church buildings, but this is not one. This is a pretty safe place. If there's one reason you can think of that the friends you work with or your neighbor could not find this church accessible, you should write them down. You should call Mark or Summer. You can call me. You can call one of the elders of this church urgently and say, I have to speak to you about a urgent matter. This and this and this is happening at Sanctuary that makes it a barrier to me bringing people to church. This should, for those of us who worship here, This should be a low barrier place where we can come and and go to church. It should be a low barrier place where we can bring our friends, our co-workers, our relatives fearlessly. And if we're not that, tell us how we can repent and change. Because there's a world of people out here that are alienated and isolated and desperately need a community of reverence that's rooted in Jesus Christ. Now, A couple of observations that I want to make here then. First of all is this idea is that we're together. Second of all, what is it that's the church's primary job to do beyond anything else? What's the most eternally significant thing? It's to say in what we say verbally and what we do that God is alive in Jesus Christ and God's not mad. Just as we open worship today that this holy, worshipful, awesome, fear-inspiring God has come to us with a lead team of angels saying, be not afraid, Emmanuel, God is with you. And that, that God that some might as f- think of as fearsome and angry at them is actually a God in Jesus who wants to be our friend, our neighbor, to walk with us and us with him. Isn't that a beautiful story? and everybody belongs. There's nobody that doesn't belong. And if you've got somebody in mind that doesn't belong inside that story, you need to get your head right too, and so do I. And then this fire starting that takes place in the early church is extraordinarily global. Day one, every language of the world. Day one, cross-cultural barriers. People in that audience at Pentecost were literally from enemy countries that over the years had done battle with and, and attacked Israel and been its enemies. And people whose values were very different. And in these cultures, different Jews had gone to live and they came back to Jerusalem. And the earliest church made contact with all those cultures. again, Not only should the church be low barrier for people to be evangelized in the community, but we should be low barrier for people of every language, ethnic group, and cultural cluster within the world. There's nobody that doesn't belong in the church. And when the church reaches out, we need to realize that we're a worldwide movement. You see, while church attendance has declined by 34% in the United States since 2000, it's gone up at mind-blowing levels. Millions of people, literally millions of people being added to the church in India, Africa, and China over the course of any given year. And by the way, this is kind of fun. You know, we used to do missionary work to the world as American Christians, and we were part of the dawn of the mission age in the 1800s. The United States of America is now the second largest mission field in the world of unevangelized people. So when Jesus said, go into all the world, We did that, now it's come back to America and tell the story to all the generations of people who have been skipped and forgotten and excluded because of their race or other lifestyle stuff. It's time to tell this story again. And I, I just think the symbolism of Pentecost is so beautiful. The wind is the wind that gets in sails of ships and guides them at the wind's bidding, basically, with a few alterations. And the fire is a source of energy. And both of those are absolutely primal. Some of the most primal forces in the universe, you got wind and fire in the church as a symbol of how organic our faith is supposed to be, how easy it's supposed to be to spread with the common elements of wind and fire. And we become elements of wind and fire, and literally it's the celebration of the first, first fruits. We become the first fruits of the kingdom in the church, showing the people of the world that Jesus is alive and inviting them in. Well, I think what this all says to me is we're part of a wonderful movement, and we're doing some really great things as the church. There's over 2 billion of us a a third of the world's population that would claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. And perhaps the one thing that's preventing us from changing the world that we're a part of, one or two things, is our neglect of being together and keeping each other's faith warm. And our second one is being silent and having people try to look at what we do and assume what gets done in Jesus' name and assume the story of Jesus rather than telling it. So if we hang together and we open our mouths at the right time and in the right ways, full of love, we can recapture this primal movement and be a part of it. We can get back in touch with the elemental rhythms that God intended for us when he created us and when he came to us in Jesus. He said, howdy. He also said, why don't you all come along with me and I'll do you good. So let's join Jesus in telling his story everywhere.